1: the next six months to a year are going to continue to weigh this administration down with scandal as this continues to take twists and turns. And that's going to diminish our ability to do big things in the world. No question about it.
0: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, where I'm joined in studio by Derek Cholet and Dove Zakheim. Derek is the executive vice president for security and defense policy at the German Marshall Fund and co-editor of Shadow Government. He previously served in the Pentagon as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs and is the author of the recent book, The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World. Dove is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as a senior fellow at the CNA Corporation. He previously served in the Pentagon as Under Secretary of Defense and Chief Financial Officer in the George W. Bush administration. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you've got episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast erpodcastatforeignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, We have the following conversation. All right, gentlemen, we are six months into the Trump presidency, and I just printed out a review of Trump uh, and his first six months. It says, Trump's triumphs are many after only six months, and he's just getting started. Uh, This was written by Mike Pence, I might say. Um, So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But, you know... enough time has passed i think it's appropriate to take account of you know in a serious way of where some of the administration's policies are leading the damage they've done the gains they've made this is an administration that seems beset by scandal i think we've got jared kushner and paul manafort who are going up on the hill to testify trump's approval ratings are the lowest of any president in memory or maybe in history um But is it all that bad? And it's nice to have our shadow government contributor and our elephants in the room contributor. So we've got people from both sides here. Let's do six months and 60 seconds. Derek, how's it been so far?
1: Well, I, I wrote a piece in FP shadow government a few days ago where I said, you know, watching the last six months, it's felt like being trapped on the... Doomed space flight Apollo thirteen, uh, where <laughs> you've had a major. Uh, it's cold. It's lonely. It's cold. It's lonely. There's been a cascade of technical failures, and you're hurtling into space, and uh, things do not look good. What I tried to do in this piece, and I, I, the first six months of the Trump administration uh, has been a bonanza for foreign policy pundits and comedians and white collar lawyers, you know, because there's just been so much bad that has happened. I do think it's important to try to to try to try think about what good there is. There's a scene in Apollo 13, the movie, for the nerds out there who are into the space program as much as I am, where the flight director turns to the one of the engineers and says, you know, okay, what do we got that's good on the aircraft, right? Because it's really easy to focus on the doom and gloom coming. Um, so there's a few things that I think are worth pointing out uh, within the sort of – in the totality of something that I think is, is – uh, six months, it's pretty grim. You know, it has not been the kind of liberal fever dream that that we thought in some ways. Like Rudy Giuliani is not the secretary of state, which is what was seriously discussed uh, for at least several weeks during the transition. You know, we have a Pentagon that Dove and I know very well and we still have a lot of friends there that's running basically – a long course. I mean, there's been a lot of continuity from the previous administration to this one. We have a a leadership at the Pentagon who's trying very hard to reassure partners and uh, to show that the U.S. commitments to Europe and elsewhere are going to stay the same, that you know we're still taking the fight to ISIS, and we're still going to try to get a defense budget that's healthy, and that's all. That's all good. It's good to know that our counterterrorism policy, in terms of the cooperation with our counterterror partners in Europe, the degree of sharing, the the coordination on intelligence issues. That's as far as I can tell. That's continuing a pace, and that's a good thing. And there's even some glimmers of efforts of trying to make diplomacy work. I mean, this administration, despite the fact that that Tillerson has been a complete flop as Secretary of State so far in the first six months and hasn't done much to show that he really wants the job or is is willing to fight for a strong State Department, which is very much in contrast with his predecessors, Republican and Democratic predecessors, where going back from Colin Powell to Rice to Clinton to Kerry, uh, Tillerson seems to be more than ready to let the State Department budget go down and to kind of undercut the State Department in many ways. You know, there's, the administration's appointed a couple envoys who've been – one's just getting started. Kurt Volker is doing Ukraine. Uh, another guy, Jason Greenblatt, that a lot of folks were skeptical of early on because he was Trump's lawyer, but he's working on the Middle East peace and he seems to be at least get, starting out early. I don't – or starting out well early on. I don't hold out a lot of hope. We're going to see uh, – breakthrough in the Middle East, but I sort of give him credit for trying.
0: He's got his work cut out for him today.
1: Absolutely. No, and this and, – and, and, you know, the the fact that Tillerson, at least so far as far as I know, hasn't even given a phone call to either side to try to calm tensions uh, what's going on in Israel. Anyway, so the point is, is I think in the totality things are, are in pretty bad shape and we're heading uh, – I have no reason to expect that six months from now we're not – or a year from now at the outer end that we're not going to be embroiled in a massive constitutional crisis – uh, and the world's problems are only going to get harder. There are a few glimmers of hope out there. So that's my that's my optimistic, uh, <laughs> uplifting perspective. Now I turn to Dove to, to, yeah, to I just, tell me how I'm wrong.
2: Derek just gave me a very big smile. So uh, <laughs> you, you can tell he's uh, kind of figures I, I've got nothing much more to say. A couple of things are worth noting. The first is that Much of the disaster, I think is the term you use, the term a lot of people use, is on the home front, really. Um, The foreign policy, national security side of things actually isn't bad at all. There's been, uh, obviously, a lot of inconsistency. You get a tweet one day and a different tweet another day. But I think our allies and partners are beginning to realize that uh, it's a matter of ignoring the tweets and just seeing what we do. And when you look at what we do, or in some cases what we haven't done, it's pretty good. For example, we haven't pulled a single troop out of Europe. Uh, there's a lot of talk about a permanent deployment. Well, that, all, that reassures not just the Baltic states and not just Poland, but it reassures NATO. Um, another example, um, after all his uh, fuming at NATO and, and saying all kinds of disparaging things about the alliance – Um, first Mr. Pence, well, actually, first Mr. Tillerson and and Mr. Mattis, and then Mr. Pence, and finally the president himself made it clear that Article Five really is meaningful to the United States. That's no small thing, but it also reinforces the point that a lot of us have been making to our friends and colleagues abroad that nothing much fundamentally has changed. It added a lot of credibility to that argument. In uh, the Middle East, I think the most important development was the missile strike. Uh, Here, there was a huge contrast between the previous administration and this one. Uh, Mr. Putin was known not to think very highly of Mr. Obama, whether you agree with Putin or not. There are a lot of things to disagree with Putin about, but that was his view. Clearly he had expected a lot more from Mr. Trump, Uh, otherwise there wouldn't be all these investigations going on, Uh, but the Russians were caught flat-footed when we went after their ally, and they could do nothing about it. And that's really the main point. We go after their ally, and they can't do anything about it. They couldn't respond. They couldn't do anything. And that was a message, uh, really a twofold message. The first was, don't mess with the United States. And the second one was, if you're going to try to mess with the United States, you're not going to get very far. That's terribly important as well. In uh, East Asia, uh, clearly, uh, Mr. Trump started out very hot and heavy vis-a-vis China. Then he cooled off. He's talking a tough tough, taking a tough line again, selling F-16s to the Taiwanese, no small thing. Um, And again, telling Beijing, as he told uh, the Syrians, as he told the Russians, in effect, we're going to do what we want to do. And let's see you stop us. Uh, Now, the big issue that flips over from the domestic to the international and back again, of course, is the relationship with Russia. Um, That's why Uh, Kushner is testifying today That's why Manafort's up there today Uh, That's what all the newspapers are about Every single day That's what gets the allies scratching their heads And our enemies scratching their heads for that matter Um, What it's also done though Is messed up any possibility Of actually trying to do something positive with the Russians Um, There are a lot of things That we probably need to do with them Like figure out how to manage uh, Some kind of solution for Ukraine I think very highly of Kurt Volker He's a first rate diplomat uh, and uh, he's got a tough job ahead of him. Not so much because of the nature of the problem, which is tough enough, but because anything that might look like a concession to Russia will immediately get tied back into the investigations. There's a problem there. How do you resolve Syria? You can't do it without Russia. Uh, nevertheless, again, if you do anything with the Russians, it, it, there's going to be blowback, not necessarily because of a Syrian deal, but because of what's going on domestically. So, well, there's already been a Syrian deal. You know, they, the, well, the deal Putin has been that Assad's going to stay in effect. Uh, clearly. And, and, but I think even the previous administration came to terms with that. Nobody's ever actually said it. Nobody wants to make Assad feel good, but that's, that's mm-hmm. the reality. But Trump has done a couple of things that, uh, again, um, one might not have, ex- have expected. He, nobody really expected him to uh, renew the uh, Iranian deal. There's lots of talk of sanctions. Against. Well, look,
0: this was a this was a first day promise
2: by and he didn't do on it on the campaign trail, right? And I mean, he I didn't and he didn't do it. And I think and I, th- I and I think most people would say they're, they feel better that he didn't keep that first day campaign promise. Just like a lot of people feel better that he didn't keep his promise to call China a currency money later. So um, both of those things, I think, are, are terribly important. Um, sometimes it's better if he doesn't do what he says he was okay. going to do. Uh, and so, and and one other person that I think you know, Derek rightly mentioned Secretary Mattis. Uh, I think a lot of people still uh, want to give Secretary Tillerson a little bit of time. What he's trying to do is reorganize the place. He's trying to do it the way he did things in ExxonMobil, and of course it's different.
0: By hiring a big consulting firm to come in and uh, but that's chop
2: it, 30%? But, yeah. but look, a lot of, a lot of uh, ministries around the world have done that. I mean, you look at the British Defense Ministry, they've hired McKinsey to do something like that too. The other thing, of course, is just because he wants to chop 30%, uh, that doesn't, and it's not clear whether it's him or Mr. Mulvaney over in OMB, mm-hmm. by the way, having fought with OMB many times myself, believe me. It ain't necessarily what the agency wants. Um, Congress isn't going to go along with it anyway. And maybe he concluded that since he knew Congress wasn't going to go along with it, why fight with Mulvaney over something that Mulvaney wasn't going to get anyway? So, so there's that as well. I, I guess my point is if you actually look at what we've done relative to what's been said, at least in the foreign policy, national security world, and, and there are more things we can talk about, it's really not bad at all. Uh, I would say even in terms of the defense budget, Um, they haven't done very much to address the sequester. But then that's been a headache for the Obama administration, too. I mean, it's just a headache. If you sit in the Pentagon, it is a migraine. But at least he's laid out some stakes in terms of what he wants to do. And that's an important message as well.
0: I think there are a couple things things that maybe we'll get to or, you know, let's jump into them that, you know, Trump promised and then did do. And there are repercussions to those. I mean, he did promise to... Uh, to leave the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the mammoth trade deal with Pacific nations. He did promise to get out of the Paris Climate Accords, and he did that. And, you're trying to suggest that there are some commonalities that people would want to talk about in terms of the trajectory of American foreign policy, whether it's under the Obama presidency, it's under Trump, or it would have been under Clinton. There are certain things that are progressing Maybe it's degrees of style, but, you know, there are some big things that, that he's done
2: that look like self-inflicted wounds. Well, TPP, um, I, I had a lot of problems with him pulling out a TPP, and I wrote about it. Um, but it wasn't just him. I mean, if you looked at the, the last four candidates standing in the election, Sanders, Clinton, Cruz and Trump were all against TPP. There's something going on in this country and it comes well, down. Well, what's it, going on is that people don't understand what a exactly. trade deal is. And I was and about to say. It's a populist say, message it, on a campaign it, trail. No, but it comes down to leadership. You know, somebody should have said, look, you guys have it wrong. You people don't understand. Nobody did that.
1: Well, there was one guy doing it, Barack Obama. <laughs> I yeah, mean, let's. But he wasn't it. running for president. he wasn't running for president, but I mean, that's. I mean, I think what's interesting. I, you're totally a fair point because I think let's face it. One of Secretary Clinton's first acts in office would have been to withdraw from TPP. I mean, she or committed to that renegotiation. Uh, I think in the frame of way. Well, the frame of it would have been. It doesn't work. I mean she was very clear about this on the campaign trail that TPP was a flawed agreement, right? Of course, she had advocated for it, but her argument was she wasn't there for the end of it. So now that she knew the details and she would seek to renegotiate it. So it would be in the spirit of we're still for trade. We are still going to try to uh, negotiate this thing and fix it. And, you know, Trump and similarly with Paris, I mean Trump pulls out and – there's no expectation or really understanding at all of what the next step is other than that then we're just pulling out. And I think that's, that's one of the problems. And what's interesting with TPP is that here you have many of our partners, in fact, those who, who signed on to the TPP, the Asian countries, uh, trying to find a way – to keep it alive without us. And these are Latin, and Latin American and like, countries too, right? Absolutely. I mean, Chile,
2: Peru, we've got, you know. Yeah, but look, a couple of points. First of all, I don't disagree with that because, uh, again, uh, as I say, I think what we did was basically open the door to China with the one belt, one road, and you know, they've already got that investment infrastructure bank that we didn't join. That was your guys' mistake. Our guys' mistake was to walk away from TPP. On the other hand, look at NAFTA. We were going to leave NAFTA. We haven't left NAFTA. Partly, I think it's because Mr. Trudeau charmed the pants off the president, just like Mr. Abe. <laughs> he does that, to, he pant- does that
0: to pretty much everyone. I <laughs> yeah. And he and sucks, and, right? Uh, but Abe
2: did it, too. <laughs> Again, you don't know what's going to come from one day to the next because it depends on who uh, whom the president meets. But at the end of the day, we, you know, NAFTA hasn't been changed yet. And even with TPP, he says he'll renegotiate. He says it half-heartedly, I grant you. Um, but there's something deeper in this country about that. Uh, and, and quite honestly, you know, Derek's right. The president did, tr- President Obama did try to explain why TPP was important and it fell on deaf ears. Yeah, there's something right. going on here that's exceedingly troubling in my view.
1: And the problem is, and this gets to the kind of the larger catastrophe, I think, that is looming, which is, Dove and I can agree on certain policies that it hasn't been as bad as everyone thinks. And that's part of it's something that's inherent to Trump, which is he gets graded on a curve, right? So we all, we think of what it could have been, how bad it could be. And the fact that it's not that bad, it's like, okay, things are, are okay, right? He hasn't nuked someone yet. Right, so, right. And yeah, that's what I said. I mean, right. okay, you're right. I mean, Mike Flynn only lasted three weeks. Rudy Giuliani's not the secretary of state. He has kept with the Iran deal. He's, uh, you know, hasn't pulled us out of NAFTA. He hasn't gone to war with five different countries. He hasn't totally caved into Russia. I mean, it's all the it's all the fact that he's sort of semi reverting to the mean that he gets huge credit. But I think that the the truth is we are headed into a period of domestic political turmoil here that is going to weigh this administration down. It's already weighed it down a lot so far. I see a policy moving forward that is going to be probably without ambition um, because it's going to have a president and a team that is going to be under siege. Now, in part, that's intrinsic to Trump. I mean, any part of his career has been all about crisis and drama. And I just uh, – you know, I think we, we – this is never normalized, right? And we, we've we – I think from the time that he was elected, there was a thought among all the smart people listening in on this podcast that, you know, Trump, with the 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 gravity of the issues and the weight of the office will cause him to kind of become normal. And I think what we've seen that is – last lasted about – uh, five minutes into well, the inauguration speech? Well, maybe not, because remember, Trump stood up before the joint session of Congress and read a speech and everyone said, ah, oh, he's right. finally he's a the president. president. now." Or sure. the night of the Syria strikes, which I actually don't give him a lot of credit for. I think that's something that Barack Obama would have done and Hillary Clinton would have done. And we could talk about that. Uh, well, Barack uh, Obama didn't do it. So no, 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 no. Totally different context. Completely different context. We can, we can talk about that. But uh, the point is, is that night everyone was like, ah, he's finally the president. The guy we saw in the New York Times interview last week, and I encourage everyone to read the transcript because it's a, it's a plug into the mainframe of a psyche, is that's who he is, right? And it's uh, someone who's fundamentally uncomfortable with democracy, I think, and fundamental democratic norms, like a free press, like a rule of law. Uh, and this will be a test for our institutions. We've, been, we've had these kinds of tests before, right? It was Watergate. That's the obvious parallel. Uh, go back to Iran-Contra in the 80s. The next six months to a year are going to continue to weigh this administration down with scandal as this take continues to take twists and turns. And that's going to diminish our ability to do big things in the world. No question about it.
2: I don't know that we'll be able to do big things in the world, but a, a couple of points. First – When Reagan got elected, they said he'd cause a nuclear war and we're all still here. I remember that very well because I joined that administration around the time everybody was saying he would cause a nuclear war. And when George W. Bush got elected, everybody said, well, you know, he was basically a hick who wasn't really very smart. Uh, and there tends to be this this attitude that Eisenhower
0: wait, was— Wait, is there a butt coming after the George W. Bush line? <laughs>
2: Eisenhower, isn't that, Eisenhower I mean, was dumb. nostalgic I mean, for him now, no, no, no. but he wasn't Look, the best president America's ever seen. He may not have been him. the best president, but he wasn't anywhere near the worst. And Eisenhower was dumb, remember? All he did was play golf. Maybe you don't remember. You're younger than I am. The point is every I time— I I think it was yesterday. Where most Republican presidents get elected, they start off with, you know, they're— there's something wrong with them. In the case of Trump, there's no question that if you read the Times uh, interview, you're, you're going to walk away shaking your head. But the point is that, first of all, our institutions are strong, and that's really important. I mean, an, an obscure judge in a state very remote from Washington, D.C., stops the president cold. Um, the, the media is hammering him on a daily basis. Um, this is not Russia, it is not Turkey. Frankly, it isn't even Israel, where the prime minister is also in charge of the media. Uh, This is a very different place. And it creates certain constraints, even upon a president like Mr. Trump. That has to be taken into account. Then there's another factor as well. Um, Maybe precisely because he doesn't, you know, he looks at everything from a 50,000 or 70,000 foot level. There's a lot that can go on below his radar screen that can promote continuity and stability. Frankly, looking at the Pentagon from the outside, I believe that's exactly what they're trying to do. And and they're relatively successful at doing it, Um, which means that, you know, at some point in the future, when there is a different president, that president, he or she, will not have to start from ground zero because there will have been a great degree of continuity. Now, obviously, one could say Mr. Trump could still start a nuclear war or, or thank God that he hasn't or whatever that's not the way it works. Derek knows that very well. So in a sense, having the kind of, frankly, loyal bureaucracy that we have, you know, people who are the the top level bureaucrats could probably do all kinds of other things and make all kinds of other money. Um, They're sticking around. Um, The people who are coming in, certainly the people Mattis has brought in, are solid people. Um, Frankly, the ones Tillerson is is slowly bringing in are solid. And one of the reasons, by the way, that's not mentioned often enough, is why are there not more political appointees joining the Pentagon or the State Department or anywhere else? Because Mr. Schumer has said he will not allow more than three government-wide approvals at any given time. This is his way of fighting, and I've heard this now from several sources. And what that means is, this is his fight back.
1: Yeah, but I mean, And, yeah, I and, mean, and let's face it: if you can
2: only bring in three government the, wide, the, the, you're not going to get all your people uh, in at one time.
1: I think. I mean, on the other side, it's there's been fewer n- even nominated than than. I mean, you know, well, it's, 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 defense running, has I more
2: mean, than a dozen right now yeah, waiting. Well, and, and the they've been nominated.
0: Yeah. The Department of State. I mean, Tillerson hasn't met with you know the assistant secretary yeah, no, no. level deputy assistant. You know, secretary.
1: and I also know that I've you know. There's been people who have been approached and in some cases agreed to do as senior jobs who then pulled out because of worry. Previous tweets. Well, (laughs) previous tweets or worry that, you know, this is a sinking ship. So I, I think there's there's no and obviously a lot of the issue is the fact that many folks who would normally staff a Republican administration if this were Jeb Bush, for example, uh, have either said well, during the campaign? 150 of us right, signed said letters. They're not going to or, or they're not. You know, nothing. So nothing's really happened that's going right. to change your mind. I just, think if we kind of step back and think about this, what I think is interesting is that because I, I think there, there's a lot of merit in what Dev said about how you know beneath the seventy thousand foot level, particularly in places like the Pentagon, you see a lot of continuity. And what we could be seeing here is the the eclipse of the imperial presidency, and it's kind of it's counterintuitive with Trump, who is arguably the most imperial of all presidents in every way, from the family court that he that he maintains to the blending of public and private, to his uh, zeal for sort of martial ceremony right remember he oh, said he, he loves, said he loves he,
0: those parades he, right he like, said to
1: the new york times couldn't we we're going to have one of those bastille day military parades on pennsylvania avenue at the same time he he is someone who is completely uninterested in the hard work of governing whether it's on healthcare or foreign policy issues, he's not getting into the nitty-gritty of any of this, right? And what therefore, what you're seeing is the bureaucracy or technocrats who are running certain agencies like Jim Mattis, who I would say is a technocrat, right? Who is, I don't mean that in a belittling way. It just means he's not someone who's particularly ideological. He's very pragmatic. He's just trying to solve problems. That to kind of roll along, and at the same time... You're watching, I think, the power of the president be diminished. You certainly are seeing it with the Congress and what's happening this week in Washington with the Russia sanctions, which are sanctions that I support, but it's Congress encroaching upon executive power in a way that has many purists of executive power quite nervous because this is limiting the president's ability to conduct foreign policy. That is only happening because Donald Trump is president and everyone's worried about what he may or may not do with Russia. Now, that's going to have a huge impact for presidents moving forward because that's going to set a precedent for future presidents, whoever the next president is. To build on Dove's point of kind of watch what we do, not what the president says or tweets, it, it's sort of saying the president doesn't matter as much. That, that okay, there's going to be a, a show, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be crazy stuff happening, but it just doesn't really matter because he's not connecting what he says or tweets or thinks to what's actually happening in policy.
2: Now, I don't think that's a terrible thing at all. I happen to think that an imperial presidency is not good for this country. And, you I know, this is being the majority. And this has been building up, you know, I mean, it started really with Harry Truman fighting the Korean War without any congressional authorization. And it just seems to me that, you know, there was a kind of pushback by Congress, you know, uh, During toward the end of Vietnam without funding the Vietnamese and so on. But by and large, there's been this accumulation uh, to the point where, you know, President Nixon famously said, I'm president, I can do what I want. Incidentally, President Nixon later told people that he seriously regretted what he had said. Um, I don't know that Mr. Trump will ever regret what he says. I don't think he has that gene. But the fact of the matter is that having— A more assertive Congress is what the founding fathers really wanted, that checks and balances really are good, that in fact the president still has a heck of a lot of leeway, uh, even if there is strong congressional oversight. But uh, if Mr. Trump's greatest contribution is to restore a certain degree of balance, between uh, both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, particularly when it comes to national security and foreign policy, I think that'll be a terrific legacy. It may not be the legacy he wants to leave,
1: but I think it's terribly important for the good of the country. Oh, and oh, I, I guess the—I mean, I don't—I don't completely disagree. But the damage done on the way—that's like saying, "Well, Nixon has a great legacy because thanks to Watergate we had well, all sorts of—but again, but of, my point. Thanks to J. Edgar Hoover's no, overreach with the FBI, no, we had actual. No, but my point. You know,
2: my point, of course, but, is is that. If you take that in addition to what I said earlier, that things will move along and that it's not, we're not reversing so much what we've done. Yes, in particular cases, primarily in the case of trade, uh, even immigration, I mean the system is not letting the president do what he wants on immigration. In trade he can do what he wants Uh, and what he's done I think has not been terribly good. Um, but by and large, the system is moving ahead, which means that the next president will have something to work from. But I'm hoping that the next president will not be an imperial president. Well, I mean, look, government
0: isn't shutting down, but even bureaucracy needs a sense of direction, right? Policies have to come from the top, from an administration. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to see that Trump has not I mean, take China, for instance, right? It was very clear about China as a currency manipulator and being tough on trade. He's since backed away, Dove, as you said, and, you know, he seems to be sort of cajoling and baiting China into taking a more aggressive stance vis-a-vis North Korea. But that doesn't amount to policy. That's the only thing he's really said. Um, So, you know, also the signaling strikes me as a problem. It it does make a difference whether whether or not you want more power and authority vested in Congress or other branches of government. The, The role of the You know, the executive is still crucially important in the conduct of foreign policy. And a lot of times it really does take a president with deep interest and care about a particular subject to get other leaders up off their asses to join the United States in some goal or to do something. You know, is Jason Greenblatt going
2: to make peace by himself? No, but look, I mean, take a look at the – you know, it's it's, it's ironic, but Mr. Trump's beating everybody up about NATO – Got everybody to say, yeah, we're going to spend that, 2%. That's,
1: but yeah, that's not true. I mean, that, that's – they had said uh, at a summit in Wales in 2014, everyone had made the pledge. They may, signed, but, they, but they didn't do anything. No, 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 <laughs> but, because it's by 2025. I mean, they'd signed something to put them on the trajectory to get to 2%. I mean, this is – you know, Trump can – there's no question that he – because he has, he has uh, put on the table the question of the United States not – Adhering to its commitment to mutual defense, he's kind of raised awareness of this much more. But I don't buy. I don't think he deserves credit for uh, the few countries that have gotten over two percent to this point for for getting that done. But and this is, gets back to what I worry about, and this is these are the, the the bells that that I don't know if we can ever unring, which is the the loss of moral authority. And and this is a it's a it's it's an interesting if you compare it to Watergate, right. In this respect, Kissinger, if you go back and read Kissinger's memoirs from the Watergate period, he was secretary of state, national security advisor at the time. He was very worried about during this period of domestic crisis, maintaining U.S. credibility. And, and Richard Nixon was very worried about that. Mm-hmm. And when they would travel around the world trying to reassure partners that despite the fact that we were having all this domestic turmoil, that the United States could still be relied upon and that there was still a government that worked. Uh, And, of course, Richard Nixon went out of his way to put on a a happy face, to to show the world that nothing was changing, that it was a a facade of of normalcy in many ways. Of course, what we now associate with Nixon and kind of what was going on behind the scenes are things that were only captured in secret tapes and we only know about them because they uh, were later made public. Of course, what's happening with Trump is – all out there. It's all in the open. There's no attempt to try to put a facade of of normalcy on any of this. And moreover, some of what Trump says, whether it's his erraticism in terms of taking one position one day and another position another day, uh, it's the fact that in defending himself, he is he is actually using the talking points that many of America's adversaries used. He said, well, look, you know, we're no different than you – know, kill people Russia, too, Russia right? does stuff. Yeah, we do that too. You know, so who are we to – It's kind of a – breath. it's kind of a, are, some refreshing honesty. Who, well, I mean, you know, Barack Obama – it's amazing. Barack Obama was criticized for going on an apology tour. Right. Right, where he would go around the world and try to speak truth and say, look, we got it wrong sometimes in the past. And part of what's what makes us the United States and unique is that we're willing to admit that we make mistakes – Acknowledge him and build on that and move forward, right? Uh, Trump, it's very different. It's not – I mean it's not in the spirit of let us be honest about ourselves so we want you to be honest about yourselves. It's, it's in a way to try to deflect criticism from him. Um, and, and what I worry in this is that, you know, Trump in kind of – I feel like in the eyes of the world, he's, he's become kind of a crossbreed of Silvio Berlusconi and Hugo <laughs> Chavez, Right? populist, rich guy, you know, that people we're still the United States, we still got a lot of throwaway, we still got a big defense budget, we still got a military that's second to none, you know, we still got a huge economy that's the most important in the world. But this kind of the more clownish and and, and our, our president becomes, the less folks pay attention to him. And you know, we both served in government when Hugo Chavez was the leader of one country and Silvio Berlusconi was the leader of another, and it doesn't didn't mean that we didn't care about what was going on in those countries, but you just knew you were going to rely a lot less on that leader. And I think that, to me, in this competitive world that we're in, uh, where countries are not going to sit around and wait for us to sort our stuff out here, uh, that, that could be incredibly damaging. Well, Moving forward. first of all, look, I'm not
2: Mr. Scaramucci. I don't have to defend Mr. Trump. <laughs> uh, and unlike him, I've never tweeted anything. Did yeah, favor- you have to clean Mr. up? Uh, but you uh,
0: flew into this podcast on a private jet, though, this yeah. morning, right? right yeah.
2: That's right. Mr. Trump's private that's jet. Right. And <laughs> that's no, no, I didn't. People might get, think that I did. No, yeah. I did not. <laughs> um, look. He metroed. For the <laughs> record, he metroed. I have not uh, heard anybody... Uh, compare Mr. Trump to Mr. Chavez they've a lot of people have compared him to Mr. Berlusconi Uh, and and I don't you're not going to get me to deny that uh he has certainly demeaned the office that he holds um and made himself to some extent irrelevant that's true I believe on the other hand uh You know, stepping back and talking to people about where they think the United States is and should we still be taken seriously? um, The answer tends to be yes. Uh, In the Middle East, for example, right, you know, it wasn't just right wing Israelis who didn't think much of Mr. Obama. (laughs) The overwhelming majority of Israelis didn't think much of Mr. Obama, they didn't think he cared. He managed to unite the Arabs and Israelis against us, and was very very capable of of him on that that score because of Iran. Um, Mr. Trump seems to have a better standing, not just with the Israelis, but with the Arabs as well. And that's why I think Greenblatt, who really has no uh, experience whatsoever, uh, is making some degree of headway. And the idea that maybe you could get the Palestinians to move uh, if, on the one hand, the Arabs push the palestinians and frankly if the arabs push the israelis. Yeah, and, but uh, so
0: the middle east is a great example here. I mean, yes Greenblatt seems like an honest broker, mm-hmm. at least doing his part to try and, you know, meet with the boss, and meet uh-huh. with Netanyahu yeah. and so yeah. on. Right. But let's talk about Trump, you know, and he, when he was in Riyadh what a month ago. He goes there for this big conference in Saudi Arabia with, you know, 50 leaders from the Muslim world and what? 6 days later, a week later, they say, "You know what? Trump was uh you know, he says we're doing a great job. We can keep doing what we're doing. And so they make up this crazy story, apparently, as you know, the Washington Post is reporting about the uh, emir of Qatar, right? They sow disinformation on the media networks and they blockade Qatar. So, you know, you would have to agree that there are knock on effects from Trump's well, Either you the know, words uh, or the a, signaling a, a, he's the, the, there ca- that have ramifications. Yeah, that but can be really dangerous.
2: But the well, look, I mean, I think uh, Derek would not disagree that the country have been playing a quadruple yeah. game for a very long time. And I think what what uh, happened was that by speaking the way he did, Mr. Trump essentially gave a green light to some of the country's neighbors to slap them down. Uh, I don't think... And
0: now Tillerson's going over there to try and fix things.
2: Well, of course. And that makes perfect sense, actually, because what you need to have done is for the Qatari's to stop supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, to stop supporting terrorists. I don't think Al Jazeera makes the slightest bit of difference for the very simple reason they've been around for 20-odd years. The Saudis survived them for 20 years. They'll survive them for another 50 years. That's not an issue. Even the, the Qatari dealing with the Iranians isn't an issue because the Dubai folks deal with the Iranians. So... The, the real issue is the support for the kinds of folks that are actually opposed to us as well. One other thing that Trump has done in the Middle East, which I think has been pretty gutsy, uh, frankly, uh, is to support the uh, Syrian Kurds. In the face of the Turk of Turkish anger. Yeah, and yeah, the Turks I, I, really are angry.
1: I just don't give Trump any credit. Oh, mean I mean, Trump I mean, couldn't I, pick a Kurd no, out of no, a no. police I mean, line, the, line. The fact of, of the matter is the Obama administration, I mean, obviously we've been working with the Kurds since the beginning of the ISIS campaign in twenty fourteen. Right. The Kurds have been our ground in Iraq and then in Syria. And the Obama administration, if was had teed up the decision to arm the Kurds. I think it was the right decision, uh, but but I think correctly had deferred it for the new team to make, and I, they made the right decision. Uh, and it's it's not surprising to me that they did that because the same people who 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 were there in the Obama administration, namely the Joint Chiefs and the Central Command, uh, fighting the fight in Af- in Iraq and Syria, were the same people advising Trump. Um, but this is where the Middle East is actually an interesting one for me because when I think of what the U.S. is actually doing in the Middle East, right? So Dove says, pay attention to what, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I I'm, I'm, I'm ask myself, what are we doing today that's different than what we were doing six months ago in terms of military posture in the region, in terms of the campaign in Iraq and Syria, in terms of uh, the U.S. commitment to provide... Called uh, the Gulf Partners, GCC partners with significant military capability. With our commitment to uh, Israel's Israel security and and the close defense relationship with Israel, we're not arming moderate rebels anymore. Apparently, so so okay, so uh, interesting. So I'm trying. I'm, I'm that's trying how, to I'm, go honestly. Through a bunch. So one of the things we're not doing, according to press reports, we're not arming Syrian rebels anymore. Um, you know the 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 famed airstrike that Trump gave the green light to several months ago in Syria was not the beginning of some new U.S. military strategy to deal with the Syrian civil war. It was a one-off strike that was analogous to when Bill Clinton took a shot on Baghdad in June of 1993 in retaliation for the, his attempt the Saddam Hussein's attempt to assassinate George H.W. Bush. It was a one-off. And uh, that's what Trump did here. But, but yet there's no question that Trump is popular in that part of the world and even in Israel, although I think in Israel, it's a little more, it's kind of, they're not quite sure what's up because some of the stuff that Trump said on settlements or what Greenblatt may be up to on the peace process is, is caused some pause there. But so then I asked myself, okay, so why is he more popular? I mean, what, 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 is it just that Obama, they didn't like Obama and they just, Trump feels more familiar to them because- I mean, Obama made the Iran, the Iran deal, which was heresy but, 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 but to the Trump Saudis. But Trump is stuck with
0: the
2: Iran deal. By your account, since you guys think you did so well in the Middle East, if not not much is different, that should, ought to be a good thing. So but you guys here one. is Derek, Derek, yeah. and and those your who friendly work from, moderator. Those who yeah, not your friendly moderator. But you guys, <laughs> Derek, and his his colleagues from the Obama administration. Is that clear enough? <laughs> Am I good, not that's obfuscating? Good. <laughs> um, but look, there are a number of things. First of all, you cannot say that the attack on uh, Syria is a one-off because, whereas with Mr. Clinton, that was a long time ago, so we know it was a one-off. You don't know if there'll be another strike. And the Syrians don't know if there'll be another strike.
1: I, I think I think they know. What My sense is what and, they've and, learned and is if you use chemical weapons— They're going to catch it. We will you take a strike. Well, but we didn't yeah. do that in the Obama no, no, administration. No, again, we got rid of— 1,300 tons of chemical weapons. If, if, if Donald Trump had faced the same risk calculus that Barack Obama had faced, which is you take a strike and potentially you unleash well, tons of chemical weapons and you invite retaliation with the use of chemical weapons, well, then I don't know that he would have done it. The risk calculus is totally different. That, that, but that's different. counterfactual. Totally different.
2: That's counterfactual. You have no idea. What you do know is the strike happened. He had chemical weapons. He probably still does. And he's not using them. So that's number one. You know, number two, as I said, this isn't necessarily a one-off. Number three, if you look at Afghanistan, I think one of the biggest mis- and Iraq, one of the biggest mistakes the Obama administration made was to give a date certain from when when uh, troops were going to be withdrawn. Clearly, Trump is not doing that. There's a debate over adding troops, and and it's a legitimate debate. Do you want to add troops in a war? To, in Afghanistan, where we've been fighting for 20 years or not. Yeah, but these are going to be training troops by and large, But the right? po- Well, training troops until they come under attack, in which case they may not be training troops. And we know that, that troops that are, quote unquote, for training ne- don't necessarily just do training. Fair enough. So, you know, the point is that he is not issuing the same kind of signals. That is, a, in my view, a positive change, because you never should tell the enemy when you're going to get out. Uh, it, oh, and look, you, you,
0: you, know, you don't have to make the case that Trump has replaced credibility with unpredictability. I mean, that, he said he was going to do that from the get-go, and that's been consistent.
2: You know, so it, it, my point is simply, again, and, and look, uh, who puts together proposals to strike Syria? Who puts together proposals to do more in, in Afghanistan? I mean, it is the, the career bureaucracy, the career military. And that, again, uh, reinforces my point that you've got a certain degree of inertia in a positive sense, positive inertia, that's going to keep things ticking over reasonably well. And to the extent that things do tick over reasonably well, maybe in spite of the White House, it's going to reassure allies and friends that they pretty much know where we're going. Now, uh, again, uh, I'm not going to stand there and defend Mr. Trump's tweets. Uh, It's the last thing I'm going to do. Um, But if to the extent that those tweets have less impact than he would like them to have, I think that's probably a good thing.
1: I guess that's fair. I I mean, it's kind of putting lipstick on a pig, but I I agree. I mean, yeah, to the extent he's irrelevant, that's a good thing
0: in my book. There were real economic and long-term implications of not having TPP and instead having China's plan, RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. That's a big deal. Pulling out of the Paris Accords – it's a middle finger to 180 other nations. There may still be people in the bureaucracy here in the State Department, others who worked hard on that deal or in the EPA or elsewhere or in private you know, enterprise and who are building solar factories. And the United States is not going to start the lake in – what was it? Cleveland It's not going to light on fire again. We're not going to go terribly far the other direction. Coal mines aren't going to come back on again in the way Trump said they were. But he is – showing himself to be an outlier to a lot of sort of accepted common policy around the
2: world. Now, look, look uh, again, on trade, he seems to have said, you know, he's willing to renegotiate. I have no idea what it means. And, and as I've said, I think it's it's a serious problem. On the Paris agreements, personally, I didn't like them to begin with, but having signed them— to be out there with Nicaragua, I guess, and and Syria as yeah. the only three countries, it's not a great company. <laughs> it's not the best company yeah, to not, have. That's um, that, it's not the room you want to be that's in. That's for sure. Yeah. But again, I think as as you just said, the system is going to continue for quite some time. And because we have not only a separation of powers but a division of powers between the states and the federal government, you're going to see the the most important industrial states in fact imposing regulations that will be at least as tough as what the paris accords require and that and you cannot you seem to be in the same place as mr trump in believing that everything is mr trump it's not all mr trump and the united states is bigger than any president it is a system that is so distributed that by and large uh, things tend to work themselves out as a result and I think the Climate Accord is a classic example of that. If the 50 states were not, as it were, uh, federalized, but simply were one central unit, then you'd be absolutely right. But when California and New York and Massachusetts and, and Ohio and a whole lot of these states are going to go their own way, which is not Mr. Trump's way, then what the United States is doing is not necessarily walking away from the Paris Accords per se. Uh, was he right to do it? Uh, you know, yeah, if he wants to be in bed with Assad and with—what's uh, uh, his name down Ortega. down in—yeah, uh, Ortega, in, uh, yeah, Ortega. My God, he's been around with us for 30 years. <laughs> um, you know, he keeps turning yeah. up like a bad penny. Um, but if he wants to be in bed with them, you know, I'm not going to tell him who to go to bed with. Um, but uh, the system itself is so much more robust. And, and there's one other thing we haven't really mentioned, and that's McMaster and, and McMaster and his team— mm-hmm. Most, I know, I know those people, um, and by and large, they're the exact kind of people that the uh, so-called base can't stand. And they're internationalist; They are very, very attuned to the demands of our allies, of our friends, um, and they are a moderating influence. And so it isn't just Mr. Bannon who's uh, calling all the shots in the White House. Uh, and I think the, the speech at NATO... The second time, the, the Warsaw speech, rather, as opposed to the speech at NATO, demonstrates that. The speech at NATO was approved by Mattis and Tillerson and McMaster, and then it was a Bannon speech. The Warsaw speech was very different.
1: Yeah. Well, it was sort of two speeches, actually. It was, yeah. it, was a, it was a kind of right down the middle of the plate you know, uh, uh, speech about transatlantic relations and U.S. NATO, and then there was this apocalyptic well, the, the, clash, you know, of the clash of civilization stuff. Yeah. So it was sort of an am- amalgamation of the two, the two yeah. lobes of the Trump brain. Yeah, there brain. was some nasty stuff in that speech. Yeah. it didn't yeah, yeah. take much
0: to read between the lines yeah.
2: there. Of course, Sam Huntington would think it was a great speech. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. That's right, our founding uh, yeah, yeah, right. father. That's right. Well, look, that seems like, you know, I'm, um, I guess I'm pleasantly surprised. Derek, I thought you were going to come out with a flamethrower,
1: but
2: you no, seem Derek's not a flamethrower. He's know, a nice guy. He is a nice
0: guy. <laughs> you know.
2: Even if he is a I, Democrat. Uh, you know, I'm, from,
1: I'm from Nebraska. <laughs> I'm eternally optimistic. And I'm a Nebraska Democrat, which makes me a Republican in 46 states. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right.
0: Well, we'll see you guys in another six months for a year roundup. Okay. Um, okay. But thanks so much. For thank thank time. you. Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.